you turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Several years ago, I was having a conversation with a guy who had interest in Christianity, but was uh, stumbling upon some intellectual uh, objections that he had to Christianity. And we began to work through those together. Um, the reliability, the authenticity of the scriptures, how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know is really what God intended to be written down? How do we know we have accurate copies of the original scriptures? Uh, what about other faiths? How do they compare, contrast to Christianity and the gospel? And as we work through those objections, he finally got to a place where not only was the gospel and Christianity something that he saw as a viable option, he, he, he began to desire it. He began to want it. He began to see how, if this is true, I have to follow Jesus. And then the conversations turned to the implications of the gospel in his life. Like, how does now believing this and becoming a Christian affect my marriage and my parenting and my job? In fact, I remember one time he said, tell me about tithing. What do I do about that? I'm like, well, that, that's the most important of all spiritual disciplines. You know, let's, let's walk that out. <clears throat> he was beginning to see that once this gospel is believed, it affects everything. And as we begin to enter into our next series, we're beginning to walk through this New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. We spend our times uh, on Sunday mornings mostly walking through books of the Bible for a variety of reasons. It helps us, for instance, declare the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that are easy to understand or easy to apply. It helps us see the full picture of the gospel as we bounce back and forth from Old Testament and New Testament so we don't fall into the trap of turning this big story that encompasses most of human history into just about us here and now. Christians in America, in the South. We are part, a small part of a much bigger story being written, as Scott was alluding to when we quoted the Apostles' Creed. Preaching through books of the Bible, we hope, is also helping us become better students of the Word. As you sit and hear the, the Word of God proclaimed, we hope and pray the Spirit is doing a work in you to make you hungry and thirsty for the Scriptures in your personal life. So that what you hear on Sunday morning is not all you get, is actually driving you to the Word Saturday or Monday through Saturday. So that in your DNA groups, in your missional communities, you're engaging in the Word. We want to be that people. We, we don't want to just become a little Bible college where we're all just a bunch of Bible knowers. We want to be most known for being Bible doers, for living out the reality of the Scriptures and the Gospel in us. And so in the same way we walk through Colossians and Jonah and Mark and Daniel and Ruth, now we bounce back to the New Testament and we begin a journey that Lord willing will take us to Advent, a walk through Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. More accurately, as we'll see, his first letter that was preserved and passed on as scripture to the church in Corinth. So today we're just going to introduce it, kind of get started in the first three verses, beginning in verse one. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful that what we hold in our hands today 
is the exact message translated that you intended for those believers in this city almost 2,000 years ago. You have ordained that it would be preserved and kept and be a blessing to your church for all of these years. And here we are sitting and standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, grateful. So as we walk through this series today and this year, may you bless, may you bless the, the preaching of your word. May the Holy Spirit open eyes to see, open hearts to receive, open minds to believe in Jesus more and more and more and more and more of our life. Do this work because you love us. For your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what my friend was understanding was the connection between the truth of the gospel and the application of the gospel or the living out of the gospel. Some would call this orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right living. And they cannot be separated. If we, what we proclaim as the gospel, Jesus incarnate, alive, perfectly righteous, sacrificially dying in our place for our sins as our substitute, and then rising to prove all he did and said was true and ascending to the right hand of the Father so he could intercede for us to even today. If all of that is true, then his life is in us. And Jesus doesn't move into a person and leave things the same. He changes everything, transforms everything in every part of your life. He's constantly uh, moving and shaping and, and, and chipping away the old and building up the new. And if you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you know this. You know that he's constantly at work in you to expose and point out, hey, let's work on this now. Okay, there's improvement there. Let's work on this now. Let's get better at this. There's constantly areas of our life that need to be submitted to the authority of Christ in us. That need to experience the fullness of the life of Christ in us. This is a lesson this young church in Corinth was in the process of figuring out. And as we will see, they have a long way to go. And if we wouldn't be too self-righteous, we would admit the same thing. There are more and more areas of our life that we need Jesus to saturate, to transform, to change. Now, Paul had been and was in the process of helping this church see, and this journey for him would be very difficult, very painful, and would actually only get harder even beyond this letter. One day we'll walk through 2 Corinthians, and it, it was very hard by that point, very painful for him to, to, to correct and instruct and exhort this church. This book of the New Testament is a letter. We call it an epistle. Most of the New Testament is made up of these kinds of letters, most of them by Paul, from Romans to Philemon. Some say he wrote Hebrews. Most scholars say he didn't. Nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews other than the Holy Spirit. I like the argument for Luke. John wrote uh, four books uh, along with the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, along with Revelation. James wrote James, to make sure you're with me. And Jude wrote Jude, very good. Both half-brothers of our Lord. And the rest of the New Testament is historical narrative, the four Gospels and Acts. That's essentially the New Testament. Thirteen of these letters are from Paul to churches he either had a direct contact and influence with or churches he had an indirect contact and influence with. For instance, this was Colossians. When we walk through that, some of you may remember. Paul didn't personally plant the church at Colossae. He was proclaiming the gospel in Ephesus. Epaphras heard the gospel, goes back to his hometown of Colossae, Proclaims the gospel. People come alive in Christ. A church is born. They have trouble. They send word to Paul. Paul writes Colossians to deal with the difficulties that church was experiencing. 
There wasn't much of a relationship Paul had with them, but this church in Corinth is not that kind of church for Paul. He was heavily invested in them, and they brought great joy and great heartache to the apostle. So let's begin first with Paul, the author. Paul, dramatically converted, as told in Acts 9, on his way to Damascus as a Jewish Pharisee to continue his persecution of the early church, is confronted on that road to Damascus by Jesus in his glory, transformed instantly, and in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul headed to Damascus to persecute followers of Jesus, not to find and believe in Jesus. Paul stood by earlier, recorded in Acts, when men laid their cloaks at his feet while they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Paul, standing there, is giving his tacit approval. I'm okay with this. These people need to be wiped out. Paul, known for his zeal to persecute those who were of the way. In fact, the early church struggled to trust him because they knew of his desire to persecute the church. So when he shows up, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, hang on. Is this real? We need to examine this guy. He could just be pretending to infiltrate and take out more of us. In other words, Paul was not looking to become a Christian. He was looking to find them, imprison them, maybe see them beaten and even killed. Paul knew he was an unlikely choice to become a follower of Christ, much less an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with this theological issue the Corinthian church was struggling with, the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of not only Christ, but of us. In 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest defense of this resurrection. And he says in the opening chapter, the opening verses, he's, he's naming all of these people that Jesus appeared to bodily when he was physically raised from the dead. It's essentially, Paul is saying, this is written in the mid-50s, it's only been 15 to 20 years. Essentially, Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, he rose from the dead, go find these people. They saw him. They experienced it. And then he says in verse 7 through 9, Then Jesus appeared to James, his half-brother, which was significant because Jesus would, would have to rise from the dead to convince a half-brother to believe that he was God. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul saw Jesus bodily, physically raised in the same way Jesus appeared to others on the road to Damascus. It was not just light and a voice. He saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. This post-ascension appearance of Jesus. Paul would be, in fact, he says, the last one to see this. And this was one of the key qualifications of those who would hold this position of capital A Apostle. There's the gift of apostleship that you still see in the church today. Think of a church planter. But these capital A apostles were these men on whom the foundation of Christ, the church, was built. Their teaching, their writing of the New Testament, their eyewitness account that they saw the risen Jesus. And Paul says, I'm the least of these apostles, unworthy to be an apostle. But here in verse 1 of chapter 1, I am an apostle. I am called by God to be this apostle. And this is going to be an issue in the Corinthian church. Much, much more bigger issue in 2 Corinthians, but you begin to see it already here in this first book. They're questioning the authority of Paul. Now, this is not typically how Paul opens a letter declaring his job title. But as we'll see in his dealings with the Corinthians, it was important. So he's just throwing it out there. Let's get this on the table now. God has willed that I be this apostle. 
Apostle literally means messenger of Jesus Christ. Jesus was his primary message, as we'll see in chapter 2. Paul is the author of this letter, but we need to make an important distinction. Paul is the human instrument through whom the Holy Spirit authored the letter. So 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All that we have, what we call the Bible, was written down by men or the, the copyists that would be helping these men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men were not dictation machines. They were not robotically just writing down whatever words and phrases popped in their mind. It was divinely ordained cooperation between the Holy Spirit and these men. So we have exactly what God determined would be written to the original audience and preserved for us, his church, for all of these years. Not devoid of individual personalities of the authors, but actually filled with their personalities. So, so Moses, born a Hebrew, educated in the finest Egyptian schools, is the perfect instrument to write the first five books of the Old Testament. The religious and legal and ceremonial and covenantal language that would establish a nation. David, the warrior king, shepherd, musician, poet, the perfect instrument to pen the songbook of the Hebrews. Amos, the farmer, writes in a way a, a seminary professor told us you could smell the dirt in his language. I've never had a grasp of Hebrews that well, but I just sound like a good quote. I trust him. He writes like a farmer. Isaiah, a member of the royal court of the king of Judah, writes with high and lofty language. Jeremiah, the weeping pop prophet, is crushed as he watched the demise of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem. And Paul, likewise, uniquely gifted with certain experiences and abilities that make him a great choice to be an apostle to the Gentiles, an apostle whom God would call and use to spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Paul, born to Jewish parents in a Greek city, Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem at the feet of the renowned Jewish teacher Gamaliel, raised to know the Hebrew scriptures at the level that one day he would become part of the most esteemed religious teaching group, the Pharisees, but also raised in Greek rhetorical methods of learning and communicating. Paul was also a Roman citizen, probably in return for his parents' service to the empire. Maybe they made tents for the army. So he was a Roman citizen by birth, from something his parents probably did. And as a Roman citizen, he had free access to the entire Roman Empire, significant privileges that you see him calling upon all through the book of Acts. And so a Jewish born in a Greek city, trained in Hebrew and Greco-Roman classical education as a Roman citizen, yes, he is a great choice to write half the New Testament and spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Uniquely gifted with unique experiences that under the control of the Holy Spirit would make a world-changing impact for this apostle of Christ Jesus. In the same way, God has uniquely gifted each of us to do exactly what he's called us to do. It's this Paul writing this letter as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the reason it's important to make this distinction is this. This wasn't the only letter to Corinth that Paul wrote. These were what we mentioned throughout the book as we study. Uh, Paul also received some oral reports. Paul made some personal visits. There was a lot of back and forth with this church, as you will see if you're familiar with this book. But what we have in our hands as 1st and 2nd Corinthians is actually the 2nd and 4th letters Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So some people question, well, what if we found those other letters? We would just tack them into the Bible. Well, why weren't they kept and preserved? Well, if we found them, they wouldn't be added. And they weren't kept and preserved because not everything Paul wrote with Scripture are inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we know? Well, we know because we don't have letters. 
If the early church saw his other letters as valuable as these two letters, they would have kept them. Just like they preserved these letters, like the Holy Spirit preserved these letters and kept them and, and, and had them copied and translated through the years. And so it's important to know that because a few hundred years later when the church was so large they began to have these councils and meetings to decide theological issues, at one of them or, or at a, a few of them it began to be officially recognized, here is the canon, here's the rule, here are the scriptures, here's the official Bible. And if you watch Christianity on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, they make it seem as though it was all this political machinations and this, this, uh, this person wants this and this person wants this and they kind of just give and take and they finally come to an agreement about what is the Bible and what isn't the Bible. And that's why we have these 66 books and not those other crazy books every now and you hear about. That's actually not true. The council simply recognized what the church had been doing for a couple of hundred years. The people of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, they established what the scriptures of God are. The counselor just said, that's it, you're right. There's a lot more to that if you're interested, but anyway, this is why we have 2nd and 4th Corinthians, and their, their other two letters are, are not in existence anymore. But you can have great confidence that what you hold in your hands, translated into English from the original Greek, is the same letter that the believers in Corinth received, read, and circulated almost 2,000 years ago. Paul says he had a companion, our brother Sosthenes. He could have been the synagogue ruler mentioned in Acts 18, we'll look at a little bit, who came to know Christ, was converted, and now accompanied Paul, maybe even helped write this letter down. Sometimes Paul did that. But there's no definitive proof that's him. He's a brother, we know that. He's with Paul, and this meant something to this church. Both men, the great apostle who wrote half the New Testament, and this guy, we don't really know who he is, are valuable members of the body of Christ. One very visible, one seemingly more invisible, but both useful to God and his kingdom. A theme we will come back to in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And then Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth. Corinth was a fascinating city in the Greco-Roman Empire. Completely destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC because they had an uprising against the Roman Empire. They didn't want the Romans to come in and take over, so they had a rebellion. The Romans said, you're dead. Wipe the city out. As late as... 80 BC, this city was still in ruins, had not been re-inhabited uh, by anyone. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar, shortly before he died, ordered that Corinth be rebuilt as a Roman colony, which meant Roman citizens would move in. A lot of times it was retired military, would be given land. Roman architecture would be reutilized re or utilized to remake the city in a, a southern Italian Roman style is what um, archaeologists think happened in Corinth. Roman law, of course, would rule the day. Latin would become the language. This rebuilding effort, along with Corinth's unique position on a four-mile isthmus where ships would sail from the Aegean Sea until eventually the Ionian Sea, made Corinth a uniquely positioned strategic city for trade and commerce and culture. In other words, sailors going from the Aegean Sea headed out to the Ionian Sea and eventually the Mediterranean could, could cut across this four-mile strip of land to either take their ship out of water, roll it across logs, or just empty their ship and load up a new ship and save themselves a six-day journey around the Isle of uh, Cape Malaya. Eventually, in the 1800s, they built a, um, a um, channel across that four-mile isthmus. But because of this, Corinth, once rebuilt, became the largest and most prosperous city in Greece. 
in a very short period of time, without the long lineage of families who had been there for decades and decades. Everyone was new. Money poured in through trade and commerce. Cultures mixed. There was a large population of people who would only be in Corinth for a short period of time before they take off again for their trade routes. Language, ethnicities mingled together. The Isthmian Games were held every other year, second only to the Olympic Games in Athens. And this was typical of how the Lord would lead Paul to plant churches, go share the gospel in these large hub cities where many cultures and people mix. People come alive in Christ. They go back to their smaller cities and regions and see new disciples of Christ made and churches planted like Colossae. Corinth was, according to one historian, the least Greek of the Greek cities because it had been recently rebuilt as a Roman colony, but the least Roman of the Roman cities because of the diversity and the Greek influence. It was a city where Greeks, Latins, Syrians, Asians, Egyptians, and Jews bought and sold, labored and reveled, quarreled and hobnobbed, in a city and in the ports as nowhere else in Greece. And you'll see this throughout the book of Corinthians. Latin names, Jewish names, Greek names. A church that struggled with unity and diversity. And I hope and pray as we become more diverse as a church, we will learn much from their struggles for this unity. We'll be talking about a lot about the culture of Corinth as we move through this book because so many key passages you have to understand the culture that, and the issue that Paul is addressing in this culture. So many of the passages that boggle our minds are better understood when we understand the culture in which these believers were saved out of. Religious temples to Aphrodite, Asclepius, Hera Argeia were incredibly influential temples and pagan religions from whom these Corinthian believers were saved out of. So understanding those religions and how they worshipped Give some insight into the worship issues that this church had that had to be addressed in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Paul addressing them as a church of God in Corinth. Not the church of Paul, not the church of Corinthians, but the church of God in Corinth. Now Acts 18 gives more insight. If you want to flip over to Acts 18, it gives more insight into how this church was formed and Paul's involvement in the forming of this church. Corinth, in some ways, was, you might think of it like a border town of the wild, wild west. Exciting, frequented by people who wanted to be rich or have their indulgences fulfilled. One author put it like this, The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud of his physical strength. They, these are the true Corinthians. In a word, a man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. It's a lot we can learn. A very intimidating place to come and proclaim the gospel. In fact, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 2 that he came to them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So in this narrative of the book of Acts, Paul had seen the church born in Philippi before he was asked to leave that city. They caused a mob in Thessalonica where he went next and he had to be snuck out at night to Berea where there was a strong work established in Berea, a good work. But again, the Jews found out and they were in an uproar and Paul was put on a ship by himself to go, leaving behind Silas and Timothy to go to Athens in Acts 17. There, Paul got to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill. Some believed and some made fun of him. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out of his garments, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge in these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, interesting detail that Luke includes as a writer of Acts. In verse 12, it says, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Now, we know from an inscription found at the nearby town of Delphi that Gallio was proconsul for either the year 50 to 51 or 51 to 52. He only served part of his two-year term, and for that short time, Paul was in Corinth for those 18 months. Interesting to study archaeology, how often it corroborates what the Bible says as historical record. And because we know the exact time Paul was in Corinth, we know that this was one of his first letters that he wrote. On his next journey, he ended up in Ephesus for the longest time of any of the churches, and he heard of the trouble in Corinth, and we began to have this back and forth between him and this church. His time with these believers was difficult, as we see in his letters and as we see in verse 8 through 11. Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed Together with his entire household, many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to him, do not be afraid. Wait a second. Everybody's believing. Why is he still afraid? Good things are happening. Paul was in Corinth for most, if not all of those 18 months under the shadow of fear. Even though good work was being done, there were still those who wanted to harm him, who wanted to evict him, who wanted to hurt him. And so the Lord has to come to him and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Do not be silent. Keep speaking. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul is being attacked, not because he's leading a rebellion or an insurgency, because he's proclaiming the gospel, the same thing that we do all the time. And this happened for part, if not all, of these 18 months. Don't be afraid, the Lord says. I have many in this city who are my people. Interesting language which helps us understand more what Paul says back in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, where he calls them the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus 
called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Who are those who make up the church of God in Corinth? Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, which in this context, sanctification doesn't refer to what we often uh, refer to when we talk about sanctification, this progressive growth in the Lord. Sanctification here refers to being set apart. Just like the Lord revealed to Paul in Acts 18. I have many people in this city who are my people. I've set them apart. And as you proclaim the gospel, as you keep speaking and you're not silent, you're going to find them. Because how do we know who the people of God are? They got like a special tattoo? Special mark on them? No. We proclaim the gospel. They hear, they believe, they come alive. That's the only way to find out who the people of God are. They respond to the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul was encouraged to keep this going, to continue this work. No matter what he thinks may attack him, don't be afraid. I have many in this city who are called to be my people. Um, These are also the ones who are called to be saints, holy ones, literally in the Greek. Which is important to know when we walk through the rest of the letter. Because you're like, really? These people are holy saints? They're a mess. Their behavior at times is amazingly sinful. Sins that even Paul said the pagans don't commit. It's kind of like they taught, taught us as teachers and coaches. When you need to correct a kid, start off with something positive. And then bring the hammer. So it's like Paul's saying, I'm about to hammer you for 16 chapters. Let me just remind you from the beginning. I do think you're a Christian. Because you're going to wonder. Along with the rest of the church. Now, this is better than the church of Galatia. Paul had nothing nice to say about them. But this church, Corinth, was young, immature, sinful, but they were still a church. Still those set apart for Christ. Saints, holy ones, Christian. No matter where you are this morning in terms of sin and rebellion, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And no one can take you from his hand. Not even you, not death, not Satan, not angels, not demons, nothing and no one. Don't live in condemnation and guilt. Repent again and believe in the gospel and see who you are in Christ. You are a saint, a holy one, not because of your works, but because of Jesus and his work. He's what makes us holy. And they had to be reminded of that from the beginning because it's about to get, it's about to get ugly from here on out. It's not surprising that throughout these opening nine verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned nine times. Nine verses, nine times. It's almost like Paul is having to remind himself, these are your people, Lord. I've got hard words for them, but they're yours and I'm yours and, and you can help us. Who is the church of God of Corinth? Those set apart, called to be holy saints, those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And so you have this particular view of the church of God in Corinth and then this universal view of the church of God everywhere. Everywhere people call upon the name of the Lord. They are the church, which is helpful in dealing with problems, having the perspective that the center of the universe doesn't reside with you and your problems. Yeah, the church of Corinth is a mess, Lots of issues to discuss. Lots of areas of their life they need the gospel to address. Their pride, their arrogance, their ministry work, their unity, their sexuality, their relationships, eating food, spiritual gifts, their beliefs. All issues that will be addressed throughout this letter. 
But the kingdom of Jesus is bigger than one church. And what Jesus is doing is bigger than one church. So yes, there is this entity called the Crossing Church meeting right here, right now. But throughout the city, there are others who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus who are helping grow his kingdom. So we should pray for them, encourage them, spur them on, celebrate their wins, help them when they are struggling and together see Jesus do something bigger than one church. One church is not going to reach Monroe. One church is not going to reach Louisiana or the U.S. We need them all. Now, there's another intentional parallel that Paul has put in. Not only the local church (coughs) and universal church, but uh, who are believers, but those who have been called and those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So you have this local church, universal church, then you have those who are called and those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Every believer is one of those people. You have been called, just as Paul was called to be an apostle, you've been called in Christ Jesus' salvation, and you have also called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, if you are a believer. You weren't saved apart from your knowledge. Like all of a sudden, I think I'm a Christian. I didn't even know I was a Christian. You knew you were a Christian because one day, by the grace of God, your eyes were opened to the reality that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and Jesus alone is the one who can save you. He's alone is the one who's done everything necessary for us to have life now and life eternal. And when you come to faith in Christ and believe in Him, then you become part of this thing called the church. And it's necessary because we're born spiritually dead, cut off from our Creator. And we need to believe in Jesus to come alive in him. And what we realize is that once that happens, we look back, we're like, oh man, God was working all along. God was doing this all along. God, in fact, made me alive in Christ Jesus. So that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, even the faith I profess is a gift of God's grace. I can't even take credit for that. In fact, there's no part of our salvation that we can take credit for. There's no part of our salvation that we will get glory for. All aspects of our salvation belong to Jesus. He alone is the one that we're going to be singing to for eternity. He's alone the one we're going to be worshiping for eternity because he saved us. He made us new creations, the people of God, holy ones, set apart ones, saints. Jesus alone is why we can stand before God and be called a saint, one sanctified, even though we're still amazingly sinful, selfish, prideful, and broken. And you see this juxtaposition carried on into verse 3 where Paul includes his normal greeting, grace and peace. All of Paul's letters, sometimes he includes mercy, but all of his letters all have grace first and then peace. And that's intentional. Paul is kind of creating his own letter greeting that's unique to him. A combination of both the Greek word grace, charis, and the Jewish idea of shalom, peace. Typical Grecian greetings in their letters might be greetings, which is a word in the Greek that's very close to charis, but not exactly the same as charis. Jewish greetings were shalom, peace, but not peace rooted in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was still scandalous, as we'll see in chapter 1, for the Jews to equate anyone with God our Father. And here is Paul, not holding back, but in one Brief greeting showing the distinctiveness of the gospel. Jesus is God. So Paul takes these two typical greetings from both cultures and reshapes them with the gospel. Grace, God's unmerited favor, something he pours out on all humanity. His common grace that all people experience. 
You don't have to be a believer to enjoy life, to live life, to have jobs, to enjoy your family, to laugh, to, to dream, to taste good food, to enjoy physical exercise or work. Everyone gets to enjoy that with the hope that the Spirit of God will call them from enjoying the common grace he gives to everyone to enjoying the saving grace that he only pours out on his and only his truly enjoy. And this is what brings peace. This is what brings peace with God. Once you've experienced the saving grace of God, now you are at peace with God. You're at rest. You're no longer at enmity with God. You no longer live under condemnation, guilt, shame. You've been adopted into your father's family forever. Romans 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You're no longer a slave. You're a child of God. You're no longer in bondage. You're part of the family now. Because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is not cheap grace, as though it's just this magical thing that God's done for everybody. It required the sacrifice of Jesus. It required the perfect righteous life of Jesus. It required the wrath of God to be poured out on his son. It required the cross. That's beautiful. And that's why we cherish this grace. That's why we don't take it lightly, but we enjoy it fully and deeply. That's why we do communion every single week. Because we never want to be separated or cut off from being reminded of what our salvation cost. It's not cheap. It's not free. It is freely given to all who would believe and trust in him. There will be a further outworking of the explanation of the gospel centered on the cross through chapter 1, the early part of chapter 2. And the book ends with the longest defense of the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 15. And so this book is kind of, this letter is kind of bookended by the gospel. Here's the cross, here's the resurrection. Chapter 1, chapter 15. This church needed the gospel to change them and change every single area of their life. One author put it like this. It was a large church. Many Corinthians were converted to Christ. It was full of cliques, each following a different personality. Many Christians were very snobbish. As fellowship meals, the rich kept to themselves and the poor were left alone. There was very little church discipline. A lot of laxity was allowed, both in morals and in doctrine, an all too common combination. They were unwilling to submit to the authority of any kind and the integrity of Paul's own apostleship was frequently questioned. There was a distinct lack of humility and of consideration for others some being prepared to take fellow Christians to court and others celebrating their new and found freedom in Christ without the slightest regard for the less robust consciences, consciences of fellow believers. In general, they were very keen on the more dramatic gifts of the Spirit and were short on love, rooted in truth. This was and is the church that Paul greets. And everything Paul would write to them flowed out of this relationship that not only he had with them, but they all had with God, our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. See that language throughout these three verses. This is the foundation for hard words. This is the foundation for gospel transformation. We need Jesus, and we need each other. 
We can't be truly transformed without both. We have to have Jesus, but we truly have to have each other to see as much gospel transformation as we're going to experience. This is the gospel community that Jesus has come to create, and it is messy. Not just in Corinth. Let's not kid ourselves. It's messy here and now, right? Let's not run and hide. Let's be open about our sins. Let's come to the cross for salvation and forgiveness. And let's be the people of God that God's put in this city to go find the many others in the city who are his people. Father, we are grateful for your gospel, that it has and is saving us. The hope that we have as your children, that we live with every day, no matter <coughs> what we face. Just make that a reality in this room. I pray for anyone who's never come alive in Christ, who's never trusted in Jesus for their salvation today. Let today be the day of their salvation. Right now, may they call out to Jesus, repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus for life and salvation and forgiveness. Do this good work in them. Save them, Father. Make us a people who have that kind of passion for others. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.